0: Are are we feeling intro times? Is it time to do the intro?
1: I think it might be intro time.
0: Okay, Asia, what is this podcast?
1: Uh, 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 hey! It's Black Box Poetry Podcast!
0: So the level of enthusiasm is higher than normal because we're all in the same room. Same room! Right here! In the flesh! In the body! And, in, and that room is in Philadelphia, the greatest American city.
1: This is true, it's also the sweatiest American yeah. city. Yeah, <laughs> I am sorry, so
0: it's my kitchen and there is not uh, any in the sort of air conditioning type of situation going on. Mm-mm. And we're, we're doing it anyway.
1: We're going to do it. We're yeah. going to commit. I'm Anastasia Nicola's. I live in Rochester,
0: New York. What are I, you guys up to? I'm Sean Hughes. I live in Philadelphia and I study uh,
2: Victorian literature at Rutgers University. I'm Isaac Wheeler, I live in New York, and I translate Russian and Ukrainian.
1: Cool. So so what brings us all to the table this evening, gentlemen,
0: to discuss on our pod? So last week, uh, by which I mean last month, we did curse poems, and it felt only natural that we follow that up with love poems, not only to sort of clean the bitter taste out of your mouth, but also because they have lots of formal similarities that are very interesting. Also, who hasn't wanted to curse a lover? Yeah, exactly.
2: The opposite of a curse poem is not a love poem. It's an ode.
0: That's, yeah, that's probably not true, but I feel like the opposite of a curse poem would just be sort of like, you know, sending someone a postcard. <laughs> or a tweet.
1: So is there anything we need to get up on the, like, up on the board before we start? What, what do we have to say about love poems before we like dive into our choices for this evening?
2: Well there's a point that Sean brought up in a previous episode about how pop songs tend to deal with love and with relationships not just because that's an experience people can relate to but because it's an experience that brings its own narrative with it sort of by invoking love you're already telling some kind of story and that's very true of love poems as well because they come with two characters at minimum and they come with irradiated significance attached to the relationship between those two characters right out of the gate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the narrative, like the implied characterization and like implied narrativity kind of elements these kinds of like the irradiated relationship. Sure. I know one thing that I always approach think about when I'm approaching love poems is the like challenge, the like unspoken challenge to sentimentality that kind of has to be in there. We either it either explicitly needs to be challenging sentimentality. It needs to like kind of court the fact that love poems are kind of always like kind of like sticky sweet and saccharine, but like also we don't want them to be. So I know that's something I always think a lot about when I'm reading love poems: is where, how is the sentimentality kind of functioning here? And there's an amazing
0: history of that. Like you can go back like you know half a millennium and see love sonnets that are already saying. This isn't, you know, I'm not one of those people who writes using tired old tropes and being insincere. I am a loyal, you know, lover who really means what he says, and expressing all of that using the most sort of archly, carefully constructed, metered metered rhyme to, you know, achieve that kind of naturalness that you're looking for.
2: In Letters to a Young Poet, Rilke has this lovely line where he's in the midst of enumerating this whole elaborate list of pieces of advice to the addressee, and in between paragraph-sized chunks, he just says, do not write love poetry.
0: (laughs) I think that's a great place to start, actually. (laughs) In Defiance of Rilke, a podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, what do we got? So what I've brought to start us is a poem by Walt Whitman, and you know it's by him because the title is actually From Pent-Up Aching Rivers from pent-up aching rivers, from that of myself, without which I were nothing, from what I am determined to make illustrious, even if I stand sole among men, from my own voice resonant, singing the phallus, singing the song of procreation, singing the need of superb children, and therein superb grown people, singing the muscular urge and the blending, singing the bedfellows song, O resistless yearning! Oh, for any and each, the body's correlative attracting. Oh, for you, whoever you are, your correlative body. Oh, it, more than all else, you delighting. From the hungry gnaw that eats me night and day. From native moments, from bashful pains, singing them. Singing something yet unfound, though I have diligently sought it many a long year. Singing the true song of the soul, fitful at random singing what to the soul entirely redeemed her the faithful one even the prostitute who detained me when i went to the city singing the song of prostitutes renascent with grossest nature or among animals of that of them and what goes with them my poems informing of the smell of apples and lemons of the pairing of birds of the wet of woods of the lapping of waves of the mad pushes of waves upon the land i them chanting The overture lightly sounding the strain anticipating the welcome nearness the sight of the perfect body the swimmer swimming naked in the bath or motionless on his back lying and floating the female form approaching i pensive love flesh tremulous aching the divine list for myself or you, or for anyone, making the face, the limbs, the index from head to foot, and what it arouses, the mystic deliria, the madness amorous, the utter abandonment, heart close, and still what now I whisper to you, I love you, oh, you entirely possess me, oh, I wish that you and I escape from the rest, and go utterly off, oh, free and lawless, Two hawks in the air, two fishes swimming in the sea, not more lawless than we, the furious storm through me careening, I passionately trembling, the oath of the inseparableness of two together, of the woman that loves me, and whom I love more than my life, that oath swearing. Oh, I willingly stake all for you. Oh, let me be lost, if it must be so. Oh, you and I, what is it to us what the rest do or think? What is all else to us? Only that we enjoy each other, and exhaust each other, if it must be so. From the master, the pilot I yield the vessel to, the general commanding me, commanding all, from him permission taking, from time the program hastening, I have loitered too long as it is, from sex, from the warp and from the woof to talk to the perfect girl who understands me, to waft to her these from my own lips, to effuse them from my own body, from privacy, from frequent repinings alone, from plenty of persons near, and yet the right person not near, from the soft sliding of hands over me, and thrusting of fingers through my hair and beard, from the long-sustained kissing upon the mouth or bosom, from the close pressure that makes me or any man drunk, fainting with excess, from what the divine husband knows, From the work of fatherhood, From exultation, victory, and relief, From the bedfellows embrace in the night, From the act-poems of eyes, hands, hips, and bosoms, From the cling of the trembling arm, From the bending curve and the clinch, From side by side the pliant coverwood off-throwing, From the one so unwilling to have me leave, And me just as unwilling to leave, Yet a moment, O tender waiter, and I return, From the hour of shining stars and dropping dews, from the night, a moment, I emerging, flitting out, celebrate you, act divine, and you, children prepared for, and you, stalwart loins. Need to kind of recline and smoke a cigarette after that one?
1: (laughs) Yeah, really.
2: Hang on, how come the sheet only goes around my waist, but it goes up to your neck? (laughs) It's the same sheet, isn't it?
1: I don't know, man. It's real confusing.
2: So I think one of the interesting things about this poem, going back to Sean's point from that previous episode about love bringing its own narrative, is sort of centered around the word correlative. Mm -hmm. The body correlative attracting. Oh, for you, whoever you are, your correlative body. That's a very peculiar word to be invoking in such a sexy poem. It's very abstract, and specifically it's relational. It only has meaning in terms of positioning two people or things in relation to each other. And in so doing, points to how love poetry is sort of always concerned about that, I think. Mm
1: -hmm. In some ways, grammatically, the whole poem is kind of based on that conceit also because of the way that from pent-up aping rivers kind of sets up like the to and the from, the implied to or the implied starting point, Yeah. Right? So it has a kind of similar sense. I Part of why I was pausing after you finished reading it is I kind of didn't, I, wa- I was curious if there was a place that we're like, we do start from or if the whole idea while we're reading is that we don't have that implied start and we're supposed to only pay attention to where we end up or where like, Or, I'm not really sure. Or maybe the from is implying the start, but we don't know where we go. I'm actually kind of curious now that I'm thinking about this how that from operates.
0: I think it sort of fits with this weird thing that as you pointing out with the correlative body is mm-hmm. that it's sort of like everything here is implying an endpoint or some sort of relationship but nothing actually coordinates for you what that is. Mm-hmm. I mean I'm, I'm even just trying to figure out what the grammar of the sentence is. From the fir- for the title you mean? Like from the beginning? For the whole poem because it looks like it's all one sentence and it's this sort of massive buildup of from's and then even when you have lines that don't build with from those are set up as parts of another list, so I them chanting, the overture lightly sounding, the strain anticipating, the welcome nearness, even those things are part of the sort of, you know, overwhelming catalog that's being ruled out for us. And it feels as though all of this goes up to the last clause, which is, celebrate you, act divine, and you children prepared for, and you stalwart loins. In some ways, the poem is insisting that there's a certain kind of destiny implied by sex. It even has that point where it says, from plenty of persons near, and yet the right person not near. As if to suggest, even in this sort of orgiastic scene where he says, from the soft sliding of hands over me and thrusting of fingers through my hair and beard, from the long sustained kiss upon the mouth or bosom, which is the, the, the lines right after that one about the right person not being near. There's a still implication that amidst all of this sex and passion that someone else out there is the ideal correlative for all of this. Who isn't been who hasn't been brought near hasn't been hearkened to yet?
1: Mm, that's interesting. So when you were reading this, this was very because of the like overwhelming presence of sex. I think I was automatically approaching this poem thinking in terms of a very particular other. You're right that it kind of says it's not a particular other, but I don't know if that's like one of those you know uh, stock images I have because of like the narrative of love poetry that we usually approach, or if that's in here that we're supposed to be kind of playing with that.
0: I mean, even like the, the things that he says he's addressing at the very end celebrate you act divine, so in other words, like the act of sex itself, and you children prepared for, so in other words, future life caused by sex, and then you stalwart loins, which is so kind of strange and magical that in all of this, there's this insistence on address, but the poem seems to be addressing the act of sex per se the possibility of more life and then the sort of classic metonymy for genitals, loins, which is at one level the leg, which you know, could be thighs and intercurial sex and all that sort of stuff, but it also seems to be this kind of like Whitmanian obsession with, as he says at the beginning, singing the phallus.
1: Well really it's an address to it's celebrate you sex and you sex and you sex because right, it's like these different ways that we think about sex or the different ways that we use the word sex.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and in some ways I think we could say that that's one of the things that the poem is sort of fascinated with is the possibility of translating that last clause as you sex and you sex and you sex. While the rest of the poem, even in its emphasis on the tactile quality of sex, seems to be exploding it into a thousand different sensations and a thousand different things that all need to be iterated separately. Mm-hmm. But also there is totally this presumption that all of these things are connected in some way. And the kind of you know, crazy grammar of it where you're being strung along through this really long list seems to sort of rely on the idea that the reader understands this as all being part of a, you know, a similar thing or experience, even though the poem is you know, jumping up and down and pushing at the edges of that and trying to find every variety of sensation.
1: Or kind of trying to occupy at the same time the singular the like simultaneous singularity but also the simultaneous like infinite history of, right? I can't help but think about the complete, right, cliche, I love you, oh you entirely possess me, right? I can like almost hear there's, like, a line in 10 Things I Hate About You where somebody says that, like, right? Oh, I possess you, or whatever. And it's some kind of, like, supposed to be cutesy and romantic, and you're, like, actually, this is just kind of rapey and creepy. Yeah.
2: Right? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, right, I love you. Oh, you entirely possess me. Oh, that you and I escape from the rest and go off, and go utterly off, free and lawless. That's, like, very independent, very particular, to particular, two particular humans, like, having sex with each other. Two hawks in the air, two fishes swimming in the sea, and not more lawless than we, right? So now it's, like we have sex just like all the birds and bees, right? And now it's, like, not particular, it's very common. The furious storm through me careening, I passionately trembling. The oath of the inseparableness of two together, of the woman that loves me and whom I love more than my life, that oath swearing, right? Again, it's, like, this, like, movement between, like, very specific, very general, and this kind of, like, weird, like, universality of these rules or something like that. I I see... I think that, like, makes... That feels like a big moment for me in the poem. That kind of, like, moving through how this dynamic is, like, both personal and universal.
2: Well, it's almost as if the sexual moment is when the universalized and the particular can coexist. Mm -hmm. Because we have these moments you're pointing out that seem to be very specifically two lovers... But they're also universalized. The reference to me or any man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the any man, the abstract figure that could always be at this particular location in the algebra of sexuality is not edging out the actual person in the actual bed. Mm
0: -hmm. I love that as a parenthetical, it says... Oh, I willingly stake all for you. Oh, let me be lost if it must be so. Oh, you and I, what is it to us what the rest do or think? What is all else to us, only that we enjoy each other and exhaust each other if it must be so? That seems to be the most conventional love talk, and it's a parenthetical. And then even the end of it is this sort of strange amor fati, love of fate. What is it to us what the rest do or think? What is all else to us? Only that we enjoy each other and exhaust each other if it must be so. <laughs> so this is the most sort of traditionally particularized articulation of a, a you know a, a kind of devotional romance, and it's in a par- it's in parentheses amidst all this other stuff, and even that ends with this kind of like, well, if it has to be that way, right? <laughs> then that's it's it, it'll be what it's going to be.
2: In fairness to Whitman, he puts the perfect girl in parentheses too. <laughs> to talk to the perfect girl who understands me, to waft to her these from my own lips, to effuse them from my own body. The perfect girl is very much an abstraction, right? Yeah.
1: Well, it's also really interesting. Your version has that, my version doesn't.
2: Mine also didn't have the prostitutes. I but mean, that's
1: also, but that's such Whitman. But Whitman's whole like revision practice actually kind of like yeah. does totally make sense. But that would totally be something he'd fucking add in a parenthes- parenthesis someday, <sighs> somewhere down the line, or take
0: out at some point. Yeah, and
2: like uh, name prostitutes man. instead. Yeah. Well it's almost as if he's recalled the idea of prostitution, and then he goes, "No, that exact <laughs> prostitute <laughs> who compelled me to sleep with her." like,
1: I'm sorry, my favorite parenthetical in my version, I don't even know if I heard you say it, Isaac, is the, from time, from time, the program, hastening, parenthetical, I have loitered too long as it is, and parenthetical, parenthetical, from sex, from the warp, and from the woof, from privacy, from frequent repinings alone, from plenty of persons near, and yet the right person not near. The, I have loitered too long as it is is a hilarious (laughs) parenthetical to stick in the middle of this crazy poem.
0: And that is, like, one of the classic Whitman jokes. Like, he does that in Song of Myself, where he'll kind of... He he literally at some point says, we have talked long enough, let us stand up. And it's this kind of weird idea of, like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) We?
2: (laughs) Wait, so I'm, like, a a person (laughs) who's sitting with you and you're talking
0: to me? Yeah. Uh, So good. Okay. Have we
1: said enough about Whitman for now? Have we gotten enough data points?
0: I mean, Whit- you never say enough about Whitman. He's made that sure. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's the whole point.
0: But I feel like this is an appropriate time for us to move on to our next poem. I guess it works, then, that we the next
1: one we're doing is Frank O'Hara, who's clearly learned a lot of lessons from Whitman, so yeah. in some ways Whitman's still having the last word. So the next one we're doing is Having a Coke with You by Frank O'Hara. Having a Coke with You is even more fun than going to San Sebastian... Irun, Hyundai, Biarritz, Bayon, are being sick to my stomach on the Traversera de Gracia in Barcelona. Partly because in your orange shirt you look like a better, happier Saint Sebastian. Partly because of my love for you. Partly because of your love for yogurt. (laughs) Partly because of the fluorescent orange tulips around the birches partly because of the secrecy our smiles take on before people and statuary. It is hard to believe when I'm with you that there can be anything as still, as solemn, as unpleasantly definitive as statuary, when right in front of it, in the warm New York four o'clock light, we are drifting back and forth between each other like a tree breathing through its spectacles, and the portrait show seems to have no faces in it at all, just paint you ever wonder why in the world anyone ever did them. I look at you, and I would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world, except possibly for the Polish writer occasionally, and anyway, it's in the fray, which thank heavens you haven't gone to yet, so we can go together for the first time. And the fact that you move so beautifully more or less takes care of futurism. Just as at home I never think of the nude descending a staircase, or at a rehearsal a single drawing of Leonardo or Michelangelo that used to wow me, and what good does all that research of the Impressionists do them when they never got the right person to stand near the tree when the sun sank, or for that matter, Marino Marini, when he didn't pick the rider as carefully as the horse? It seems they were all cheated of some marvelous experience, which is not going to go wasted on me. Which is why I'm telling you about it. (laughs) I wish you all could have seen Isaac just losing his mind every four lines.
2: (laughs) This is the good shit. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, The first one was Isaac losing his mind partly because of your love for yogurt, which is just, like,
0: always a good line, because how the hell do you move yogurt into a poem? It's also, like, I'm a bit of a Frank O'Hara skeptic, but, like, how can anyone not be happy when they're reading this poem? I know! (laughs) Uh, This is a a brief digression, but in your orange shirt, you look like a better, happier St. Sebastian. (laughs) I, I had a friend who remarked that when he was a tween, he would be at museums with his parents, and he remembered wondering... Why is it that all of the other saints died for their belief, but this saint died because he was too beautiful? (laughs) (laughs) Which is such a sweet thought. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this is a love poem, but this is also, like, I like the way that you said, Sean, that this is also, like, a fun poem. Like, it's hard to listen to this and not just, like, have fun with it um, or read it and have fun with it because that's not something you usually think all that much about with love poems. Like, they need to be, like, serious and, like, real and sincere. And I really like the fact that Frank O'Hara does a really good job of, like, screw you, man. Like, Mm -hmm. no. (laughs) Like, it's very sweet, but it's also very funny.
2: Yeah. Well, and we talked in the previous poem about how the divine husband isn't edging out the actual man in the actual bed, nor is the perfect girl edging out the actual woman in the actual bed. But here it's like the actual girl is edging out the perfect girl. Which is fucking awesome.
1: Well, it's even better. I know this is a meteor, and we don't know this, right? But Frank O'Hara is very gay, and this is definitely not a lady.
0: Yeah, and the poem gives you all—it gives you all the clues. Let's say. Yeah. But it's totally what you're saying is totally right. That the idea of like the perfect girl that Whitman puts in parentheses is almost like it's being turned inside out, where the whole poem is one big digression that's all built around the idea of saying the perfect experience that I imagine having a coke with you would be like, is so elaborate, and yet I can only enjoy telling you about it. Right. All of this comes back to this sort of really weird ending where it says, it seems they were all cheated of some marvelous experience, which is not going to go wasted on me, which is why I'm telling you about it. <laughs> right. Which is a, almost like a kind of cartoonish, like, you'll be mine. Like, <laughs> you're going to fall in love with me. <laughs> right, right, right
1: love me but also like simultaneously is is undermining the whole conceit, right They were all cheated of this experience and now I'm telling you about it, which means I'm cheating you of that experience because I've just told you about it
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's also in some ways that sort of weird thing about the kind of presumed symmetry of love, mm-hmm. which is something that's so hard to sort of work around because we all know that love isn't symmetrical or if it is, it's only briefly symmetrical. But it's very difficult to describe it without having recourse to that because it gets very messy the moment that you stop assuming that it's symmetrical. And by
1: symmetrical, you mean that, like, the feeling, like, feelings are even. Like, like, person A has 20% in and person B also has 20% in or something like that.
0: Yeah, like, it's like, this is a relationship where It seems like they're both utterly delighted, but actually all that we know is that the Frank O'Hara speaker is describing how much he is delighted by the other person and then ends the poem by claiming that he's going to somehow siphon off his own joy and give it back to that person. But that's never what it's really like. I mean, it is delightful when someone else is delighted by you, but what you experience is not their delightment for you, it's your delightment for them. There's this kind of weird thing about it sort of like there's a line in, when people talk about Renaissance love poems which make a, a, a big fuss about loyalty and, you know, deference that praise of thee is praise of me. When I write a poem about how beautiful you are, how great you are, what I'm really doing is showing off how good of a, po- a poet I am. Mm-hmm. And this almost seems like it's preempting that where it's saying I'm creating something so delightful in honor of how much I like you, that I'm then going to give it back to you, which is also a sign that I am such a wonderful person who's so charming and clever, and my poem is so delightful. It's a weird sort of game with how difficult it is to to perfectly share what it is to be happy with someone.
2: This has a historical precedent, the asymmetrical love in uh, Greek tradition as well. This This is something I would not know about if I were Skyping in from my space station that's constantly getting hammered with asteroids, but since I'm in Philly, I do know about it. In uh, Plato's descriptions of love between men and boys, he has this idea of back love, where the the man is in love with the boy and his praise and his adoration and all of that is reflected, and the boy comes to admire what he is provoking. That's, that's a weird tradition to invoke from, a, from our, our modern consciousness, but the idea of asymmetrical love has roots.
0: Yeah, I think it has a pretty persistent presence in love poetry as well. Mm-hmm. And it's true that historically that's often propped up by either an, like uh, an asymmetry in age or an asymmetry in gender. But there is a kind of curious way in which there's all sorts of other possible asymmetries that a poem like this can tap into even when the two lovers are two men and you know seemingly the same age there's still that kind of game of anticipating the other person teasing
1: one thing this is making me think a lot about is the asymmetry that's inherent in any love poem of the i versus the you. That there's automatically this is basically just building very cleanly on what sean was saying but I think what I'm just trying to get across is that, because you only ever get one speaker, you do, you, and you obviously have to assume that the other, like the you is just as invested. There is this like very funny way that you're looking for, clue. this poem makes me think a lot about looking for clues of how the you might be like observing or watching the eye, like kind of responding to this, especially all the emphasis on statuary. Which yeah. like, he's like this external observer. And we've talked a lot about Anne Carson's triangulation that there's always like a, you need a tension, a third tension point to make like a, a love relationship or a like um, more like dramatic or more interesting. Um, but this poem, in a lot of ways, doesn't just give us like the third party of the statuary watching them, but also the kind of, the you is almost also an external party. To this interaction and it's almost like it's it's kind of unclear who the kind of like third point is, whether it's the you or the statuary or whatever the third point is.
0: Ah. Yeah. And it feels like this is you you start to see a lot of stuff like this in the late 19th century where there are people who are trying to imagine a way of relating to someone else where you draw near to them but you're not dominating them. And the image of two people standing next to each other but looking both looking forward is a really common one and often looking at an art object is the way that you have that. So there's this moment in a dialogue that Oscar Wilde wrote where he imagines two men at an art gallery and one of them sees the Mona Lisa and starts reciting this paragraph from Walter Pater about the Mona Lisa and the other one jumps in and is like finishing the sentences. And this is in some ways an image for two people experiencing intimacy without trying to sort of directly control each other or sort of uh, intervene on each other. And there's another instance from that same period of this really interesting woman named vernon lee who was one of the people who brought the word empathy into the english language who was an art critic who lived in italy and she wanted to describe a perfectly bodily material encounter with art so she would go to art galleries with her lover and watch her lover look at art objects and just record everything that her lover's body did so the ways that her eyes moved around and that she sort of positioned herself in relation to it and it's this really fascinating enactment of this idea that other people were sort of, you know, gesturing at, but actually, like, going all
2: the way with it.
1: That is so cool. I, oh, my God, that, what? I'm reading that. I'm, after the episode, I'm having you write that down.
2: <sighs> well, obviously, I'm going to be hung up on art after hearing that. What I'd like to look at next is just as at home, I never think of the nude descending a staircase. hmm it's, uh, it's ham-handed, but often necessary, the nearly paraphrastic, what empirically is going on in this sentence thing on that.
1: Sure. Starting from there.
2: Uh, I don't think we can start from there, because just as has to push us back. Yeah. And the fact that you move so beautifully more or less takes care of futurism. <laughs> just as, at home, I never think of the nude descending a staircase. Mm-hmm. So the way I initially read that was the way the beloved moves so beautifully is already saying what futurism is saying. When you think about how futurist artists try to abstract movement, try to represent movement in images, just as the way the lover moves is already achieving that. Being at home with the lover is already saying what nude descending a staircase says or is there a different way of reading it?
0: I mean, the question is, does at home mean at home with you or just at home? And I assume it means at home with you. Right. I also know that when nude Descending a Staircase was first shown, people were put off by the fact that it was a nude descending a staircase, Mm -hmm. that it's not something that nudes traditionally did. Mm -hmm. And there is something about that combination of nudity with an ungraceful form of motion Mm -hmm. that was revolutionary about that. And then the, the fact that the painting superimposes, I think, multiple outlines of the same body, accentuates that feeling of ungracefulness. But it's, I, the way that I would think about it is that it's part of this sort of strange teasing quality that the poem has, where even though it's, it's sort of incredibly committed, it has these little moments where it'll sort of pinch the beloved. Like, I look at you and I would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world, except possibly for the Polish writer. Occasionally. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, occasionally, and similarly, saying the fact that you move so beautifully more or less takes care of futurism, just as at home I never think of the new Descending a Staircase is almost, could either be read as I don't need to think of it or don't worry, that's not what I think you look like.
1: Right, yeah, I also, it also feels a little bit, because it feels like a joke, right, in some ways, because futurism was taken so seriously, Mm -hmm. right, and futurism is like such a like, important, capital F, (laughs) futurism, like, Um, And the futurists themselves took themselves so seriously and thought of it as this like super politicized artistic movement that was gonna change the world, right? The fact that basically all of futurism gets reduced down to because you move so beautifully. Yeah. Like really does a really great job of like kind of undercutting anything you could possibly say about futurism and also shifting focus. Yeah. And it's a similar thing with New Descending a Staircase because New Descending a Staircase is number one, it's the title of a painting, right? And it's all in italics in the poem. So you know that it's being offset. So it's this also like this another moment of like kind of undercutting something that we know has larger cultural significance.
2: There's a really fun game you can play. With a beloved, but not necessarily with a beloved. With anybody who is not steeped in futurism and hasn't read about it a lot, take them to a futurist exhibit and watch how they react. <laughs> because if you look at a lot of futurist art from like a liberal, romantic perspective, you think, oh, so this is a warning about the perils of technology, <laughs> right? And then you, you watch them read the little tags next to the art and be like, oh no, wait, this is what they were pitching.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember when the Guggenheim had a show about futurism, I think the last image was like, bombing people sure is great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I had a really interesting conversation recently with somebody who was talking about how, how really fascism makes no sense without futurism paving the way, and like that basically every time you talk about fascism like in Europe, you should just start with an image, a tag image from like the Italian futurists, and then like, and because of this poster click we get quick <laughs> <dressing. laughs> I
0: remember reading. If you read a uh, Moretti's Futurist Manifesto, there's a part earlier than all the famous headlines that everyone knows about, where he's just describing like, I was out driving one morning because I'm like living on the edge, and my car flipped over, and a bunch of people helped me turn it upright, <laughs> and I like. If you have any sense of irony, you think, "Wow, what an asshole!" Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's the fa- the same manifesto where he's putting out a list of things that futurists have to do, yeah. and one of them is just hate women. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's like you're you're there, man. That's like when you're trying to clean your apartment and you put do dishes first on your to do list and then do them immediately so you can cross something off. <laughs> hate women.
0: Yeah, yeah. It is weird that someone looked at the nineteenth century and said, You know what we haven't done enough of? <laughs> I think I
1: think now that we've gotten from futurism to fascism, I think we're done with this poem.
0: I also <laughs> feel like the number of digressions we could potentially take is kind of boundless at this point. Because right. the poem is basically like, here are a bunch of proper nouns that you like talking about. Right.
2: <laughs> and and he's right, we yeah, do.
0: He's got us. Yeah. We it turns out we the reader are the ones who have been seduced. <laughs> I, yeah, that was meant to that was meant to come, come across way more ironically than it did, and I <laughs> want to apologize on behalf of my friends and family.
1: <laughs> I think we need another poem.
0: Okay. The poem that I brought is by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's from her sonnet sequence, Sonnets from the Portuguese. The distinctive thing about this is that it is a sonnet sequence for a couple who was already together, and amusingly, at the time in the 19th century, apparently Christina Rossetti found this very off-putting, you know, like married people loving each other, Gross. Come on. (laughs) Get it together. So, Sonnet 44. Beloved, thou hast brought me many flowers, plucked in the garden, all the summer through, and winter. And it seemed as if they grew in this close room, nor missed the sun and showers, so, in the like name of that love of ours, take back these thoughts, which here unfolded too, and which on warm and cold days I withdrew from my heart's ground. Indeed, those beds and bowers be overgrown with bitter weeds and rue, and wait thy weeding. Yet here's eglantine, here's ivy. Take them as I used to do, thy flowers, and keep them where they shall not pine. Instruct thine eyes to keep their colors true, and tell thy soul their roots are left in
2: mine. I just got engaged, and this poem's making me kind of weepy. Aww. Aww. <laughs> it does feel like one
0: of the things that's sort of marvelous about this is not only is it referencing the idea of a sonnet as a little room so you know it talks about it seemed as if they grew in this close room and it's also representing or referencing the language of flowers but There's this weird sort of overworking of the metaphor that I think makes this poem so remarkable, where we not only have the idea of a flower as a signal of someone's love for you, but as something that can grow inside of them and then be transplanted and then moved into someone else. And then somehow there's a kind of strange connection there that has to be attended to. So it's almost as though it's saying, not only do I want you to take care of these flowers, but I also need you to believe in that sort of like connection to the roots that are still in my heart. So it says, instruct thine eyes to keep their colors true and tell thy soul their roots are left in mine. So finally, the kind of like burden of cultivation and care is weirdly one in which you have to make the flowers bright by looking at them and make the roots live by <coughs> believing that they're still there. Well,
1: I think. To step back a few lines, I think, because I, that's exactly what's going on, and that's a really great gloss, Sean. But I think one of the most beautiful parts of this poem is the way how how like, it's almost based on faith that this explanation is given, right? So the first two lines, beloved, thou hast picked me many flowers plucked in the garden all the summer through, right? So picked flowers, bouquets, right? And winter, it seemed as if they grew in this close room. So right, the beloved gives flowers. You have these you have these flowers and then the only explanation is it seemed as if they grew in this close room and it that that little phrase is supposed to just tell us those plucked flowers have now like sprouted roots and keep growing right in this close room the pun on the sonnet the reference to the sonnet so in like name of that our love of the love of ours grows also right that like the logic of it is kind of a faith based thing that like you just have to you I don't know how to describe this, or like, I don't know if this is a thing, but it is a thing, and now it's just happening, right? It seemed as if it was so, and now it is so.
0: Yeah, and even the so in the like name of that love of ours, it's not even saying in the name of that love of ours, it's like in the like name of that love of ours. It keeps emphasizing all of the gaps and assumptions and, you know,
2: acts of faith that are going into it. Yeah. I I like what you both are saying, but what I don't like is how you're skipping over this close room as if it isn't the coolest phrase anyone has ever (laughs) produced. So let me break down why that is real quick for you jokers. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason that these flowers and this love require so much active maintenance goes back to Carson's triangle that you rightly invoked, Anastasia, about how you need to have distance between the two lovers for there to be a space between the two nodes for the electricity to jump. You need to have distinct people for intimacy to exist. So a close room is a stuffy room. A close room is a cramped room you could use it in the sense of there's too many people fitting in it like like us in this room we're in
1: this close room yeah you have no idea how much sweat is in this room yeah i'm
2: sorry we're (laughs) huddled around this microphone and this fan so close is uh, uh you're on a crowded subway train it's close but close also invokes intimacy and those two ideas are coexisting here this close room that we're shut up in together is intimacy but it's also being crowded it's what makes this relationship possible and what makes it require renewal and the reason it makes me do this little dance that you can't see me doing because this is a podcast but i'm doing a little dance every time i read it is because she's causing the two senses of this word to interact with each other profitably this is what Uh, Owen Barfield, a critic that I'm sure we've invoked before, talks about defossilizing a metaphor where the word spirit that we have now came from a Latin word, spiritus, that meant both spirit and breath. Those were the same idea to someone who would have used that word in Latin. So when uh, Roman would say, the breath has gone out of him, he was stating a mechanical fact about somebody being dead. He wasn't waxing poetic. Here... The fossilized metaphor is being released, and its potential is being revealed, just like the potential for connection and eroticism is being renewed between this couple that are shut up in this married intimacy together. It's like Barfield has a great example of a the, the word ruin used to mean both the physical process of a fall or a collapse and what was left over after that fall or collapse. So falling from a balcony is ruin, and scattered stones that used to be a structure is a ruin. So in one of Shakespeare's plays, a king falls from a wall to his death, and this is responded to with, Behold the Ruin! Mm -hmm. So this is both the fall and the result of the fall. Close is is everything it could possibly be and more here.
0: I also love, when she says, so in the like name of that love of ours, take back these thoughts which here unfolded too and which on warm and cold days I withdrew from my heart's ground. I love the thought that you could view the relationship as producing not just emotion, but also thoughts that have to be plucked out. Mm -hmm. And on both warm and cold days, there's just this continual work of gardening, of just pulling out all of the thoughts. And then she goes on to say, some of them are weeds and some of them are flowers, but it's this weird vision of love where it's constantly producing excess. There's like always stuff being... To the surface that has to be continually plucked at. It's another one where it withdrew, I think it's the same thing Isaac was talking about. It's both withdrew just means like I'm taking it out of the ground, but also it's that sense of to withdraw is to uh, remove oneself. And that there's this kind of weird interplay, which happens throughout Sonnets on the Portuguese, Sonnets from the Portuguese rather, mm-hmm. of watching the moments when feelings of passion or intimacy turn into thoughts about feelings of passion and, and in- intimacy. And that sort of razor's edge between feeling something, and then knowing that you just felt
2: it. Withdrew is a spatial metaphor, the way you're glossing it there. That's very important. Once again, we're getting to relative positions of lovers and beloveds are being charted in love poetry, always, it seems. Yeah,
1: I didn't realize, I've never really thought how often that spatial, like spatializing element is really important to a love poem. Like, how proximal are these things, or how do we cross space? Um, how how proximal are these like two people, or how do we cross the space between these people? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, do we withdraw? Right? That has like that's very loaded, but there's also a really interesting way because of exactly the pun that Sean is pointing out that if we're withdrawing thoughts. Kind of the implication then is to withdraw them from oneself to then give and cross yeah. the distance to another. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: In Letters to a Young Poet, again, there's a moment where he's talking about what love actually ought to look like. And Rilke makes the point that the goal isn't to abolish the distinctions and barriers between two people. The goal is as he puts it, for each to appoint themselves the guardian of the other's solitude. Mm -hmm. That you're preserving the other person's separate sovereignty that makes them able to be in a relationship of love rather than trying to Abolish that distinction in the hope that you can achieve some sort of amoeba blob consummation together. You you don't want that. Yeah,
0: there is another moment in *The Sonnets from the Portuguese* when she's playing on that spatial way of thinking, and she it's a it's unavoidably a sex poem. And it ends by saying, I do not think of thee, I am too near thee. Mm-hmm. And it is this sort of, I think this thing that we've been talking about with closeness, it's a very interesting term for love poetry because a crucial thing about closeness is that there is nonetheless still some distance there. And that it's precisely that kind of combination of a kind of maximal asymptotic transcendence of distance and the persistent awareness of it that seems to be so crucial for writing about love.
1: Mm-hmm. Although it's interesting, because of how this poem ends, right, that we never, it doesn't, it does not can like give us an idea of love where it is, like blob, amoeba form, but because of where the poem ends, there is a sense of, like, kind of challenging a little bit the Rilke idea of being guardians of one another's solitude, because of the tell thy soul their roots are left in mine, mm-hmm. there is a little bit of a kind of blurry boundary line between mm-hmm. the two bodies, right, there's even a little bit, and I can't, I was trying to grammatically parse it, maybe you guys can help me, but I think it actually works, it's a little bit like blurry also in the, be overgrown with bitter weeds and rue, and wait thy weeding, yet here's Eglantine, here's Ivy, take them as I used to do thy flowers, and keep them where they shall not pine. That moment of I used to do thy flowers mm-hmm. is a weird moment where it's, like, thy flowers have become my flowers, which are then thy flowers, yeah. right? And that moment is, again, the whose flower... They're not anybody. They're both... Who cares? Like, the yeah. flowers are so, like... They've been passed back and forth so many times at this point and rooted in both so many times that it's like yeah they're who's thy flowers they don't belong to thy anymore
0: yeah and it's totally one of the ways in which i feel like it's totally overworking this metaphor in a a wonderful way is that if you're reading it as someone who is sort of delighted by horticulture and botany then at one level it matters a great deal where flowers come from because they were bred by someone or they are sort of characteristic to a certain region or they sort of carry with them the smell or the flavor of the soil they were grown in but then she's describing this scenario in which it's very unclear whether those distinctions work that way anymore so at one level it's crucial to say I experience these flowers that grow inside of me as being at some level alien because I still believe that they're yours. And then she's saying, when I give them back to you or when you take them out of me, you need to now sort of reverse the thing and think these flowers have their roots in you, which means that they're still foreign to me, even though I got them from you who got them from me. It's kind of like weirdly sort of playing with that ambiguous quality of I don't know, like, plant life, where it both is sort of all of a piece, but also you can totally indulge in sort of thinking about it as being very much of its soil.
1: Yes, 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 yes. I think it's a, yeah, exactly. That transplanting is very funny, because transplanting a plant, when you think about it, like, according to the rules of botany can just mean, you know, I just needed to move it to a different location in the same like growth region, but also transplanting can be really insidious when you're thinking about like invasive species or you're thinking about um, weeds, right? That really, where plants grow is partially based on, is, is mostly based on context. And like, you can decide the like value of that based on like how you've decided to
0: award that context. And it's also like a maximum vulnerability for a plant, yeah. that it has to sort of
2: like develop new roots This makes me think of an idea I heard once called the (laughs) four-dimensional (laughs) bioblob. So the idea is, if space is linked to time, and time is sort of another dimension that works basically like space does, if you could see in four dimensions and all life on this planet has a common origin what you would see is every living thing in a long chain emerging from that common origin and being literally one thing Yeah. so it it can be hard to romanticize anything if you entertain that idea for too long because then when two people are trying to make love this thing is just clacking its parts together (laughs) that that really troubled me for a while after I read it I I didn't have a girlfriend at the time obviously (laughs)
0: Yeah. But yeah, I think that like, in a weird way, obviously they didn't have the fourth dimensional bioblob in the (laughs) 19th century, but I do think that there is totally that fascination with boundaries and edges, which is being explored.
1: Yeah. I think there's even, I can't quite articulate this quite right yet, I don't think, but the way that the third to last line works, right, they flowers, here's Ivy, take them as I used to do thy flowers and keep them where they shall not pine, right? there is a weird moment, obviously on one level, it's like where they don't like pine for you, Mm -hmm. but there is a weird moment there where she literally means where they're not like, where these flowers are not gonna turn into motherfucking pine trees.
0: (laughs) 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 Oh, that's so good. And like
1: the threat of that possibility that like these flowers could turn into something that overwhelming or like that unable to be contained or like there's something very bizarre about the possibility of these flowers turning into trees.
0: Well, especially because it's this species indeterminism that like her thoughts can turn into weeds or root or eglantine or ivy. It's this kind of like alternate biology where, you know, species just sort of burst into existence. I also I can't remember what the association of Eglantine is, but ivy is associated with marriage because it wraps around a tree. Mm-hmm. And the poem is seems like it's specifically focused on plants grown in cultivation mm-hmm. as opposed to just the image of a vine growing up a tree. In that sex poem I was mentioning, there's this image of this like big, strong tree shaking, and then all of the vines just bursting off of it.
2: <laughs>
1: well, mm. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. After being at the Mütter Museum yesterday, that's yeah. really particularly terrifying. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh,
0: parting shots?
1: Parting shots. I'm gonna think a lot more about space and poems when it comes to love poems now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting that, like, starting with Whitman, that's something that he is such a master of, is using the proximity of two people as a way of starting off the like a, a scene, basically building up a scene around two people rubbing against each other or looking at each other or something like that. But it does feel like it's something that, to go back to our earlier remark, is one of the key resources of songwriters that you can create a kind of scenic atmosphere merely by describing the way that people look at each other or speak to each other or like listen to each other.
2: I'm really grooving on the fact that we've been using the word intimacy so much and not, not even necessarily treating it as a metaphor, or treating it as just an available concept when these poems have made it so metaphorical again. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you knew I was going to do this in in Latin. It's intimus, which means inmost. Huh.
0: I actually didn't know that, but I... I
1: actually didn't know that either. Really? We have a long conversation to have about this
0: thing. <laughs> 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 yeah. So it really is that sort of spatial thing, which is interesting because, like, a lot of the early theories of sympathy emphasize frontality, like two people looking at each other and mirroring each other and that sympathy and intimacy have a certain connection with each other but it does feel like one of the ways in which intimacy is significantly different is that it doesn't necessarily rely on that sort of face-to-face quality and in a lot of these poems the poems are flaunting the fact that you don't actually have to look eye to eye and that in some ways could be one of the standards of a really innovative and daring love poem to go back to our earlier remark about how love poetry is so self-conscious about the cliche of love poetry one way of demonstrating the sort of reality of the passion is precisely by routing it through something external. I mean, this is Anne Carson again, the kind of triad where there's the two people and the distance between them. But it is striking that all three of these poems are claiming an extreme of intimacy, but also are kind of flaunting a certain circuitousness or indirection. Mm -hmm. I also, this is
1: really making me think a lot about the relationship between if, if Intimacy is two people like looking at each other sympathetically, right? But intimacy is also in most, right? The fact that we've also been talking a lot about how all of these poems are really invested in the interiority of a single lover and not giving the you an opportunity to really have a voice. Mm -hmm. That intimacy has this very bizarre kind of like co-function of being both about two people being intimate with one another, but intimacy can be a way we can describe inmostness, like the innermost things, thoughts, and feelings of an individual, um, and the way that we talked about a lot with the Frank O'Hara poem, that the you really doesn't have an opportunity to express oneself or express like their position, or that the lover doesn't have the opportunity to really, like. it's always asymmetrical, that the, uh, the lover doesn't always have an opportunity to kind of talk about their position. And intimacy is a weird way of kind of getting at both of those qualities at once.
0: Yeah. Yeah, which makes all of this significantly different from the Lee Young Lee poem that we talked about several episodes ago, which is a dialogue and is, I think, in some ways distinct. I don't know if we said this, but in some ways it is distinct in trying to write a poem as a dialogue. Yeah. It's not especially common in the annals of love poetry.
1: So you should listen to that poem again, too, because, dear God, it's still so good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You should also read it to your beloved if you have one.
0: hmm I think that's it. Yeah. All right. Bye, guys. Oh, that was good. That was good.
1: I don't want to fuck things up.